Good morning. How are you guys doing? Anybody chilly? No? No no one's chilly? Everybody nice and toasty in here? Okay, good. It is chilly outside. It's my favorite time of the year. I, f- I felt bad for Carl because as he was getting all excited about snow and everything, I heard, and he asked you guys, everybody excited? You're like, no. <laughs> I mean, it's my favorite time of the year. I love this time of the year. And we're planning and we're getting everything ready uh, for the holidays. Everybody got their turkey? Oh, yes? Yes? Okay, good. I hope you. I hope you did. Um, but there will be those that will probably wait until like Wednesday night and they're scrambling and it looks like Armageddon in the stores because there's like nothing left on the shelf. Well, how many of you guys are planners? How many of you guys use a calendar, a planner, you write everything down? Yep. People are like raising double hands up there. Yep. I do too. I actually even brought a calendar. I have all this stuff on here. We're constantly planning. We're putting stuff on these things, right? Or some of you might use your calendar app on your phone and then you, you wind up filling all that up. And we're constantly planning for things. We're getting ready for the holidays. We're planning for Thanksgiving. We're planning for, for Christmas. We're always planning for something, okay? And we're, we don't ever really take a, a moment and think about some important planning. You guys ever thought about planning your own funeral? Anybody? Ooh, it got real dark and heavy all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. And I had one person back there put, raise their hand. But yeah, we don't ever think about that. But that's what today's topic is going to be about. I'm going to actually talk about what happens when we die, okay? We don't put that on our calendar because we're not, we're not ready for that. It's something that we don't even think about putting that as part of our, as part of our daily schedule. And today, we're going to be going into a parable. And, and last week, Pastor Chris was able to introduce that parables are what? It's right up there. What are they? Earthly stories with a heavenly meaning, right? And Jesus typically used these earthly topics. He would give some kind of topic, and then he would have some kind of spiritual implication or spiritual meaning behind it. And he would be clear with some of them, and everybody would be like, oh, wow, that's a, that's a really cool story. And then there would be some who would be like, what, what were you trying to say there, Jesus? And then there were those that he also then used, and he used them for specific audiences, and he brought out some uncomfortable and sometimes even unwelcome truths, okay? And today, unfortunately, it's going to be one of those unwelcome truths, and that's what I'm going to be bringing to you. Today, we're going to be talking about what happens when we die, and we're going to be using the parable that he told uh, the Pharisees about the rich man and Lazarus. But we need to understand what was the point of these parables? Like, how do we read these parables and how can we apply them to now? And last week, Pastor Chris talked about the heart of man and he brought out his big heart pillow that they had given to him, obviously, after his open heart surgery that he would use to hug and squeeze whenever he coughed, sneezed, laughed, took a deep breath. And he talked about that our hearts are clogged. And when our hearts are clogged, and therefore we can't experience that true joy that only comes from Jesus. So today we're going to be talking about another heavy topic, but it's going to come from this parable about the rich man and Lazarus, and we're going to talk about life after death. But before we get into that, I want you guys to take a look at this quick video, and let's look about those parables that Jesus told. Jesus of Nazareth was a master teacher, and some of his most well-known teachings are told in short stories called parables. Yeah, like the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who was looking for pearls, and when he found the ultimate pearl, he sold everything so that he could buy it. Must have been some pretty amazing pearl. Or the kingdom of God is like a tiny mustard seed that a farmer planted in his garden. It grew and became a huge tree, and birds came to perch in its branches. And that's a beautiful image, but... What does it mean? 
Exactly. Jesus didn't tell parables to make everything clear. Rather, he wanted to provoke the imagination and invite people to see what God is doing in the world from a new perspective. So let's talk about how to read the parables of Jesus. Now there's many great teachers that throughout history have used stories to teach students about morality, religion, philosophy. But Jesus didn't use his parables to teach abstract religious or moral ideals. He said that his parables were about himself and his mission. His mission, which was to announce that the kingdom of God was arriving on earth as it is in heaven. Right. So in Jesus' day, the Israelites were ruled by the Roman Empire. But their scriptures promised that one day their God would come to rule his people as king. And so many Israelites wanted to revolt against Rome and fight for their freedom. And this is what some people thought of as the kingdom of God. Exactly. But Jesus was a poor traveling prophet, healing the sick, inviting people to follow him. And he said that this was the arrival of God's kingdom. And that didn't fit people's expectations. Right, and so Jesus used some parables to help people imagine that his small movement was the arrival of God's kingdom. Oh yeah, like the parable that the kingdom of God is yeast hidden in a lump of dough. And you might not see its influence, but it's gonna change everything. Jesus also told parables about the upside down values of God's kingdom, about how the least important people in the world are actually the most important people to God, especially those who are poor and of low status. Yeah, like the parable about the business owner who hired workers throughout the day, in the morning, later in the day, and even towards the end of the day. And when it was time to pay everyone, he paid them all the same wage. Right, Jesus is showing how money and status are irrelevant to God, who offers his generous mercy to everybody. Now, not all of the parables have happy endings. Some are really intense. Yes, Jesus stood in the tradition of Israel's prophets, who also told parables to criticize Israel's leaders because they mistook their kingdom for God's. So Jesus warned the leaders of his day, if they don't accept his offer of God's kingdom, they're headed for destruction. Yeah, like the parable of the landowner who built a wonderful vineyard and he expects it to produce fruit. Yes, Jesus gets this parable from the prophet Isaiah, but then he adapts it. Right, and so the landowner appoints managers to take care of this vineyard. And at harvest, he sends servants to collect the fruit but those managers kill the servants. And so the landowner sends his own son to confront the managers and they kill him too. And so Jesus asked the people around him, what do you all think this landowner should do? Oh, he's gonna punish those managers and hire new ones. Jesus knew that if Israel kept on their current path, they would be destroyed by Rome. And so in parables like this, he's forcing people to make a decision about his offer of God's kingdom. Are people going to reject him, ignore him, or trust and follow him? Now, if this message of God's kingdom is so important, why cloak it in parables? Why not be more clear? Well, through riddles and parables, Jesus could make really bold claims that revealed truth to people who were open-minded. For those who have ears to hear, they could ponder it and go deeper. But the parables would also conceal his message from those who were against him so that he could buy more time. Buy time? For what? Well, Jesus was preparing his closest followers for the greatest surprise yet. Jesus claimed that Israel's God was coming to rule over his people not through coercion or violent force, but through self-giving love as he was going to die for their sins. But his death wasn't the end. Right, 
He said that his death would be like a tiny seed buried in the ground, but then it would grow and produce a crop with many seeds. So these parables, they explain who Jesus was and what he was up to. And the gospel authors have preserved these parables so that now every generation of Jesus' followers can read and ponder them. And imagine how God's kingdom is still at work even today. Right. These ancient parables are still full of new surprises and challenges. They're like a storehouse packed with treasures, some that are new, some that are old, and it's all just waiting to be discovered. So God gave us these parables, these stories that Jesus told for a specific reason. And he gave us this one, which is about the rich man and Lazarus, to talk about a subject that we don't really like to talk about. We don't like to talk about the subject of death. Death is one of those unpleasant things. Death is one of those things that we're like, oh, why are we talking about that? And we just came off of this wonderful seven-week uh, campaign about grace. But guys... Without death, there's no point in talking about grace because it's the opposite. And we need to obviously talk about this because while we don't necessarily want to share in what's going on with, with this kind of story, like I said, none of us in here raise our hand to say that we plan for what's going to happen after we die, right? No one ever wants to talk about that. And the story that I want to share with you guys today, it's, it's not just con contrasting the circumstances in life for these two men. It was also to talk about their destiny after they died. And when we think about it, we start off in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. And verse 22, before we even get into verse 19, is really the subject here that we're going to be talking about. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. I love the word finally in here, because this man, this poor man, as we're going to get into, you're going to see, had suffered all this time here on earth, and finally, he was saved. So let's read through verses 19 through 31, and then we'll get into the gist of, of the, the message. And it says in verse 19, Jesus said there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, again, I love that word finally, finally the poor man died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and he was buried. There, in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to just dip the tip of his finger in water just to cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime, you had everything you had wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. So he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides, there's this great chasm, there's this great divide, where no one can cross over to you from here, and no one from there can cross over to here. 
Then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. But Abraham, but, but Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. And the rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, they'll repent of their sins and they'll turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. We have here two men who could not be any more different. If we look, we have a table here that shows the different contrasts. You have a rich man, he was clothed in purple and fine linen. He had the best threads that money could buy. He had the best clothes. Lazarus was dressed in rags. The rich man lived in this huge mansion. He had this gorgeous house, and he had servants and everyone there to take care of him. Lazarus was probably laid by some really sympathetic friends right there at the gate of this man's mansion. This man, the rich man, had a healthy, well-nourished body. He was well taken care of. Lazarus was full of sores. The rich man, he ate the best foods. He had people who he had, he probably had a, a world-renowned chef taking care of all his meals. Lazarus, on the other hand, he just desired, he longed for even the crumbs that would fall off of this rich man's table. And this rich man probably had physicians, had all these people taking care of him and meeting all his needs. You know who Lazarus had? Lazarus had dogs who came and licked his sores. You know, these two men could not be any more different. And yet, both men died, and death changed everything. In, in chapter 16, verse 22, it says, The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man was buried as well. Now, we're told that obviously the beggar died, okay? And to think of how things were done back then, the poor were not seen as being blessed by God. And therefore, because they didn't have all the wealth, they didn't have all the stuff that this rich man had, he was probably carted off to be put in some pit or some hole and then put out with the trash and probably burned. Now the rich man, we we're not necessarily told, but the rich man, with all the stuff that he ever had, we can probably imagine he had a, a glorious send-off. He probably had the best funeral that money could buy. Anybody ever plan a funeral for a family member or a friend? Yeah. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of energy and a lot of effort. So he probably had the finest things that money can buy. But as both men passed through death's portal, an amazing reversal occurred. That's why I love that word, finally, as God puts it in there. Finally, when the beggar died, angels carried him to Abraham's side. All those sores went away. God restored, renewed his body, made it perfect once again. He no longer was to suffer. Now, the rich man also died but there was no angels to carry him. And a split second after he died, he opened his eyes and he was in torment. 
Now, I want to suggest to you the possibility that this man was probably shocked as he opened his eyes and could see nothing. The Bible does describe, this is the only time in God's Word where the Bible describes vividly a personal account from somebody in hell. And I can imagine that this rich man probably changed his mind about a lot of things once he was there. Now, I have three things that I want to bring to you guys that I believe how the rich man actually changed his mind. First, he changed his mind about what was important in life. We all have lots and lots of things, and there's nothing wrong with having those things. There's nothing wrong with how God has blessed you. But who are you worshiping? Are you putting your attention and your mind and your heart and your life on God? Or are you worshiping these things? Are you feeling blessed by these things instead of focusing your attention on God? I would probably say that this man probably considered himself to be a religious man. He probably was faithful to synagogue as most you know, faithful Jews were. And he probably even gave money to religious causes. He probably said his prayers at night too. But the revelation came that after death, probably astonished all of the audience. You saw in the video that Jesus would use these stories to get people's attention. And he was telling this story. If you read actually in the first part of chapter 16, he was actually talking to the Pharisees along with his disciples. And he was talking about money. And he was talking about material things, worldly things. And back then, the Pharisees thought that if you had all these things, that that was a blessing from God. So how can this rich man go to hell? And so the rich man had lived without God in this world, so he would live with him, without him in the next. Not only did I think he changed his mind about what was important in life, secondly, I think he changed his mind about the reality of eternity. You know, we have before us the only time in God's word where we're actually told of actual thoughts, emotions, feelings, even the words from someone who went to hell. And you have to come to the point where you actually have these like terrifying realizations that, wh what is this place? Well, I want to I share with you, first and foremost, hell is real. We don't talk about that too much here. And I think sometimes our reluctance to talk about it is because we don't know too much about it. But God is quite clear in his word about what, what hell is like. Hell is real. We probably often hear the statement, I, I don't believe that a good God would send anyone to hell. Well, you're right. God doesn't send anybody to hell. That's you. God's original plan was not for anyone to die. God's word says his original plan was not that anyone should perish. That's not how he created this world. But because sin entered this world, that separated us from God. And therefore, there needed to be a payment for that sin that entered the world. And that payment was that each and every one of us were destined to go straight to hell. You know, when you think about that, that, that idea that a good God wouldn't send anybody straight to hell, that's so inconsistent with God's word. Because God is a good God. If you had a mass murderer, if you had this tremendous criminal, you would never tell a judge, 
How could a good judge sentence a mass murderer to death for his crimes? You would think he was a good judge because justice was finally served. Well, guess what? God is a good judge and justice will be served. Now, we don't say that about that judge because that judge isn't responsible for the man being sentenced to death. His actions were responsible for that. What that man did, he was responsible for that. But not only is hell real, hell is a terrible place, folks. And I'm not meaning for this to sound really dark and heavy, but I want you to understand that this is a real, terrible place. Some people have this really screwed up image of what hell is like. The author Mark Twain, you probably recognize that name because he's the author of Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, and a bunch of other different pieces of American literature. He one time said in a statement, I'll take heaven for the climate and I'll take hell for the society. Hell is not this fun place. Hell is not this place where you're going to be singing, dancing, and having a good time with your friends and family. Through this man's experience in this parable, we just get a glimpse into hell. But it's brief and powerful enough to say, I don't want to go there. And I don't want any of my family and friends to go there. Another misconception is that, that hell is sort of like this place of nothingness. You know, when you die, you just sort of go into this oblivion and, and you know, you stop breathing, you stop seeing, you stop doing everything. Well, that's not true. In this story, we're actually seeing that hell is a place of conscious anguish and torment. This man wasn't dreaming. I know sometimes I've even heard people say, well, it's hell here on earth. No, it's not. We can't even imagine what hell is truly like. This man was literally in his surroundings giving us a feeling of what he could feel what, and, and, how, and we could actually see how he could speak and experience things. He experienced thirst. We see in, in verse 23 and 24 that when he was there in Hades, when he was there in hell, he was there and he looked up and he saw Abraham and he saw Lazarus right next to him. So he called him and said, Father Abraham, send Lazarus so that, and have pity on me so that he could just dip his finger and so that he can cool my tongue with just a drop of water. Even that drop he felt would have been better than what he was experiencing. You know, this isn't the only place that God uses vivid language to describe hell. We have also passages like Matthew 23, uh, verse uh, 30, 25, verse 30. Uh, and Jesus describes hell as a place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Anybody ever been in a dark room where you can't really see very much of anything? Yeah? Well, imagine... This is the kind of darkness where you can feel the darkness. There is no light shining anywhere. And what you hear in the background is people weeping and yelling. You could hear them in anguish. But not only can you hear them in anguish, you yourself are in anguish. You're being tormented. Mark 9, 47 through 48 says, Be thrown into hell where the worms eat them and do not die and where the fire is not quenched. 
We've all probably seen a campfire and we see that like towards the end when the logs are sort of just disintegrating into much of nothing, all of a sudden the fire just weakens and it goes away. This fire there in hell is not quenched. It doesn't go away. But not only is hell real, not only is hell a terrible place, but hell is a place of profound regret. When this man finally realized where he was, he regretted every decision he had ever made in his life. He realized, I do not want to be here, but I know that this is where I am to be. And because of it, I don't want anyone to be here. And guys, to think that I would be separated from my Savior for eternity, that to me is unbearable. To me, I can't handle that. And because of that, just because of that truth right there, that's why I would want to witness to anyone around me. I would want to tell anyone in my family, anyone in my circle of friends, anyone that I can see, this is not a place we want to be in. It's our responsibility to be a witness so that we don't have that regret one day. But also, hell is final. There's no second chances after death, guys. It's done. Once you die, you probably will, will, you'll have no choice. It's either heaven or hell. Abraham responded to him in verse 25. He said, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. And now he's being comforted here and you're in anguish. There's no way for this rich man to rectify this whole situation. Hell is final. But the third thing that I think he also changed his mind about, I I think he changed his mind about prayer. This man finally started to do something that he had not done in the past. He began to pray. Perhaps he had gone to the synagogue, he had gone to church, he had said his little prayers, Yet, in his rich little life, he had never truly prayed. But things were different now. He was probably convinced that his prayer was probably going to get him somewhere. He was convinced that there was going to be a reason and something to pray for. And in verse 23 and 24, it says, In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham afar away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him. And in verse 27 through 31, he answered, Then I beg you, Father, and this was his his conversation that he had with Abraham, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they don't come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses. They have the prophets. Let them listen to them. And the rich man says, no, Father. He said to them, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. He said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, then how are they ever going to be convinced if someone rises from the dead? This man wasn't saying that he's glad and excited that his family would one day join him here. He was pleading for his family to not come here. Guys, God has given us his word. He's given us his gospel. If you can't remember a time in your life where you have decided 
that you need God more than anything in your life, then guys, that day is today. Don't leave here without seeing one of us so that we can show you from his word how you can receive that amazing gift. Like I said, it was final for this man. There was nothing that he could do. While this verse teaches us that God doesn't always give us these supernatural signs, God doesn't always give us these miraculous wonders in order to get our attention. There are some folks out there that have experienced that. But God doesn't do that all the time. But he's given us his word, and he's given us those promises in his word. We have all the information we need. But God is calling each and every one of us to his side. And then God is calling each and every one of us to be a witness for him, to go out there and to to show the love of Jesus out there so that others can come to him. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, it says, Long ago God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he's spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance, and through the son, he created the universe. As I leave you guys today, I want to leave you with an example, just a, a quick little story. You guys all know of the president that we had in our lifetime called Calvin Coolidge. Well, before he was president, he was vice president. And we know that the vice president presides over the Senate. And one day, two other senators were having this really, really awful, you know, terrible argument. And one of them said to the other senator, go straight to hell. And the senator who was told this was offended. And he went right over to, to Vice President Coolidge and he said, Vice President, do, did you hear what this man just said to me? And Vice President Coolidge was looking through a book and strumming through and looked up at him. And he said, well, I've just looked through the rule book and you don't have to go. You know, guys, the good news is you don't have to go to hell. The good news is that we have a Savior who loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to this earth to die for your sins, for my sins, and the sins of this world. But all we have to do is ask him to save us. And if you can't ever remember a time where you've done that, then guys, before you leave today, today is that day. Please come see one of us and we can lead you through that. I want you guys to bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're here today and you don't have that assurance, if you're here today and you don't know for sure whether or not you've said yes to Jesus and to his gift of salvation, then just pray this prayer with me today. You can say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've never said yes to you and I don't have that relationship with you. But God, I want you to come into my life and to save me. Lord, I know that my sin separates me from you, but I have faith in you and I have faith in your son Jesus and what he did on that cross for me. Lord, save me. Come into my life and exchange that sin for your righteousness. 
Thank you for giving me that grace that I don't deserve. And thank you, Lord, for choosing to love me. You know, we're getting ready to sing a song that we've sung here multiple times. And it's a song, What a Beautiful Name. And the way that each and every one of you probably just now just talked to Jesus. Think about that name. Think about how beautiful that name is. That name is the name that overcame the world. I love verse 2 of this song, and it says, You didn't want heaven without us. So Jesus, you brought heaven down. My sin was great, but your love was greater. What could separate us now? Father, thank you for choosing us. Thank you for loving us. And thank you for sending your son for us. Thank you for this parable that gives us an opportunity to see and just to get a glimpse of what happens after we die. Lord, I choose...